So, in the Buddhist texts known as suttas, the sublime is often put very abstractly in language that's not very helpful. Um, when the Buddha doesn't use very uh, words like piti, sutta, um, which means rapture, uh, enjoyable, pleasurable, uh, samadhi, concentration, uh, pasadi, peaceful. But when he actually tries to describe the sublime, he kind of gets really abstract. I'll give you some examples. One notable sutta, he says that the sublime is where there's no coming nor going, no standing still nor moving, without support. Thanks, Buddha. Uh, another in the Udanas is the sublime is neither here nor there nor anywhere in between. That's no more helpful, really. Uh, I can actually parse that for you because I know the background for all of that languaging, but I'd like to make it far more discernible for you what the spiritual is like, what we're going for. I must note that if I'm too explicit or concrete, then I'll kill off the idea of the experience of spiritual practice. It's a little bit like riding a bike or swimming. I can describe those states, but unless you do it for yourself, you'll never really know, will you? I mean, you could read as many books as you want on riding a bike, but the actual experience of riding a bike is kind of something that you have to do for yourself. Words can only point you in general direction. So all I'm going to be doing is pointing you in the general direction and hopefully you'll do the work and experience the sublime yourself. So I'm going to first tell you what it's most definitely not and then we'll move towards what it is. That's in the Buddhist tradition as well. The Buddha does use a lot of negatives to define positive states. So one thing we know is that the spiritual, the sublime, the transcendent, is not a materialistic endeavor. You can't buy it. You can't charge it. You can't acquire it from someone. You can't barter for it. It's not an object. It's not something you can physically hold, take home. There's no area in Whole Foods where they sell the spiritual. There's no organic variation of it. It's not something that in any way can be traded for. So we know one thing, that when we're talking about the spiritual, we're talking about something that contrasts with consumer mercantile exchange. It's not an object. You can't hoard it. It doesn't come at anyone else's expense when you're spiritual. You're not taking anything from someone else when you are spiritually or you've attained the sublime. It doesn't exploit or harm anyone else. It has nothing to do with the material plane where people are fighting over goods. In fact, the Buddha said the spiritual is not that, which is what most people are engaged with, which is he compared human beings to fish in ever-dwindling puddles fighting over dwindling supplies of food. So it's not something that there you can exhaust. There's an unlimited supply. 
So it's not material. It's not the exact same thing as deep emotions. It's nice to have that romanticist idea that if we can deeply feel our emotions, then we are deeply spiritual beings. It's nice to believe that Byron, the poet, was a deeply spiritual person, but he was a romantic. He was not necessarily deeply spiritual. The feeling of deep emotions is definitely important in life. It's what helps us navigate through the complexities of the interpersonal social realm. If you can't feel your anger, you can't set boundaries in your life. If you can't feel fear, you can't set needs, and you won't get out of dangerous interpersonal situations. So all people need their emotions, but the spiritual experience might be one of complete, as the Buddha noted, tranquility, equanimity. So it might not have an emotional flavor at all. When I first saw Jackson Pollock's Autumn Mist, I had a transfixed experience, but I was not in any strong emotional state. Nor when I first heard Steve Reich's Music for 18 Musicians, nor when I was on a retreat many years ago in the jungle of Thailand and I had what felt like a jhana-like, extremely transcendent experience. There was no emotional quality to it in the sense that I wasn't in a state of sadness, anger, fear, shame, guilt, joy. I was just in a state where I felt a trend, a, well, I'll talk about what I felt in a moment, but it's definitely not the same as emotions. The spiritual is not anything similar to the ability to fantasize. Human beings have the capability of creating entirely different worlds in their imagination. We can visualize entirely different realms, planes of existence with beings that don't exist. We can visualize amazing things. But fantasy is not the same as the spiritual. In fact, fantasy can just as often be uh, hijacked by fear and turn into catastrophizing. And no matter what kind of fantasy we're doing, we're always in something that's escapist we're putting aside the real and we're positing that something that is not real is more deserving of our attention. And if there's one thing I can tell you is that escaping into fantasy or drugs or to the uh, to deeply different states of consciousness where we cannot perceive what's actually happening is not spiritual. It might be fun. <laughs> I did a lot of acid in my day. Hey, I grew up in the 70s and 80s. We used to drop acid as a prerequisite for going to high school. But I was not a spiritual person at that point. So the spiritual is not self-centered thought. It's not being caught up in stories about what happened to me, what are other people think about me, why aren't I doing better in life, why aren't I keeping up with the kids I went to school with? What happened to me in the past? What's going to happen to me in the future? All of that, what could be lumped under the rubric of autobiography, self-narrative, self-fixation, which leads to inattention, 
which leads to a state in, that neuroscientists call default mode network. When you're in default mode network, you're activating ventral parts of the left hemisphere, Broca's regions of the brain. You're activating essentially the self-narrating, self-oriented thought. It pulls you away from paying attention to what's actually occurring, from actual sensations. You, it leads to a state of essentially uh, dissociative disconnection with anything that's real. And if we know one thing from fMRI studies of Tibetan monks and other spiritual individuals meditating, that the default mode network is switched off. So we can safely say that when you're in the spiritual, you're not going, oh, this is great, I've got something to tell my friends about at the, the party on Friday, and they'll admire me. Or you won't be having thoughts like, this seems really spiritual, but I'm not a very spiritual person, so it's probably not. I should just give up. What am I doing here anyway? The spiritual is not multitasking. You cannot be doing two things at once and have a spiritual experience. Studies by Kahneman, Amos Tiersky, and get this, Gerd Gergenzeiser, which is a name that is just meant to fuck with anybody who's got to give a talk mentioning his name. But these are people who study multitasking, and they found that when people are multitasking, they're employing what are called heuristics. Now, what's a heuristic? A heuristic is a fast and dirty shorthand that people use to multitask, where they very quickly reach decisions or judgments without really weighing what's really going on. It's like a kind of fast and dirty, that person's a pain in the ass, I'm going to avoid that person. Oops, that person's canvassing for money, i got to avoid that. i got to get across town, I'm running out of time, i got to take this route because I can't take any other route. I can't talk to that person because they look like they might want to have a conversation. Where we're constantly at work and when people ask for our attention, we're in, not now, you I can talk to, but only for a moment, you go away, you... I like, so I'll give 30 seconds. Multitasking, essentially, enrich, deeply connect, engage, involve. It actually turns the bulk of our sensory experience into these events that are quickly categorized. And to use the language of um, those who study multitasking and the heuristics that we, were, we use when we're not paying attention and we just quickly make very fast judgments. Heuristics are riddled with irrational biases. Additionally, when multitasking, the universities of London and Essex find that it damages a part of the brain called the anterior cingulate cortex, which is the key for empathetic involvement in life. If there's anything I can tell you about the spiritual, it's that it is empathetic and that it's involved. So when we're multitasking, we're not spiritual. When we're engaged in deep, self-centered thought about what's going to happen to me in the future, or what other people think about me, or what makes me different from other people, we're not spiritual.
when we're in excessive states of vigilance, where we feel threatened and we're constantly monitoring the world around us, expecting the worst, we're not. Spiritual Andrew Newberg, University of Pennsylvania, when he did brain imaging of Tibetan monks, showed that the first thing that gets switched off in their brains is the parietal. The parietal lobe is what situates you in a spatial location and looks out for threats, obstacles, and things to worry about in the world. So when you are in a state of worry about external events, your parietal lobe is firing away. But when you're in a spiritual state, you're not excessively worrying about where you are in relationship to everything else. So, what is spiritual? We do know from the work of uh, Zindel Siegel, Anderson, N.A. Farb, and a number of other researchers that when you switch off the default mode network, which is the part of your brain that constantly worries, thinks about you, drifts away, is inattentive, is not present, is not available, is lost in thought, when you switch that off, you're in another mode, which is called task positive. When you're not in default mode, you're in task positive mode. When you're in task positive mode, you're in an engaged activity that you care about. You're really engaged in something that is a process you feel responsible to attend to it. But at the same time, you're not trying to get to the end of it. You're just enjoying what you're doing. I'll use some examples. For, uh, gardening. Gardening or woodworking. And I'm using examples that I, do, I know fuck all about, frankly. I don't know anything about these things. I'll use something I do know. Playing a mu an instrument. Drawing being present and engaged in an activity. When you're gardening or playing an instrument, you don't have that thought, I can't wait till I get to the end of this song. It'll be great when I finally get to stop playing this instrument. Or gardener doesn't go, I can't wait till I finally water the last bulb. Then I'm done, that'll be great. They're doing the activity because they love the activity in and of itself. There's no desire to get to the end of it. You're doing the process. You're not trying to get anywhere. So when you're in a spiritual state, you are not trying to get anywhere. You have arrived at a place that you are tending to. It feels important. You're engaged, but you do not want it to end. You're not looking at a clock and hoping, oh, I can get to the end of this, or I have to fit the spiritual experience into the, this half-hour block of time. So when you play a song, hopefully you're not trying to get to the end of the song. You enjoy simply playing the music for that sake. Another thing we know is that the present time awareness that is the requirement of the spiritual, because if you have present time awareness, you switch out of inner narrative 
default mode network where you're telling stories about yourself. If you're in the present, you, there's no narrative in the present. There's no past, there's no future, there's no story to it. Therefore, there's nothing to take you away from what you're doing. A key to the spiritual is what's called seeking novelty and awe. If you go into a retreat with the idea, I've done this all before, I know what to expect, there's just going to be a lot of meditation and then hearing Dharma talks and I know what it's all going to be about. Or I'm going to meditate now, but I know what's going to happen when I meditate. I'm going to breathe a lot and then I'm going to open my awareness and then I'm going to probably feel a lot of body sensations and a bunch of thoughts are going to try to pull me away. And if you have that belief that you know exactly what's going to happen, you will not have a spiritual experience. But if instead you go into this practice any practice, any activity, looking for an experience that you've never had before, looking for something that's unique, looking for something that's unexpected, then you activate what's called the right, the part of the right hemisphere of the brain that is switched on, again, when they do fMRI scans of Tibetan monks. They see that the area of the brain that seeks out novelty and the unexpected is switched on. Religions get us out of self-centered fear by giving us a lot of stories to believe in. So if you're in a religious practice, you will be lo you'll be given all these stories and things to believe. Stories about people who talked with God, had divine messages. And that will, the key to religions, the way they work, is they load you down with so many different things to believe that you can't get caught up in your own story because you're, you're so busy thinking about some person thousands of years ago who miraculously crossed the desert without any food or built a boat and brought all the animals in the boat and escaped the flood where everybody else died. The spiritual, on the other hand, gets you out of self-centered, obsessive thinking by transfixing you in a state of awe and wonder where you are embracing the unexpected, embracing the mysterious, embracing ambiguity, which means experience that you cannot turn into words. When I first saw, this is, a bad example, but I uh, saw the Clash play. <laughs> when I saw the Clash play in 1980, I was transfixed the entire experience of it, and I couldn't turn any of it into words. It was just there they were. The same thing with seeing Fela in play in France. The same thing when you encounter, if you ever travel to. Um, Italy, and um, you see these amazing churches rising out of a town square. You can't turn the experience into words. It's something that transcends language and conceptual thought. It's something you just have to be with because nothing in your experience has allowed you to translate it into words. And the desire to take out a phone and take a snapshot 
is not there because you're so transfixed by the experience itself that the idea of photographing it and putting it up on Facebook or on Instagram is the last thing that comes to mind. Cloninger, the psychiatrist at the University of St. Louis, found that novelty-seeking leads to transcendence. Getting lost in the fullness and uniqueness of each moment creates a feeling of connection which gets us out of the self-other differentiation where I'm different from you, I'm different from the world, I have to worry about myself, I have to worry about this little person that's in this big environment. We're engaged when we're in the spiritual, but we're not thinking about ourselves. We're learning, but we're not turning the learning into a bunch of instructions to memorize. We're taking in but we're not translating it into words that we can describe for other people. And so when we experience the spiritual, when somebody else says, what was it like? We stumble and we struggle because the very fact that it was spiritual means we cannot put it easily into words because we've shut down that part of the brain that is constantly narrating everything. And that narration, which is left hemisphere, is the very thing that makes something unspiritual. So, if you have experiences in your life where you stand before something or amidst something and suddenly all the storytelling and the concerns about self and future and past and the fear goes away and suddenly you're just drinking it all in, then you know what the spiritual is. So, in the Buddha's Dharma, the way you get to the spiritual is we start out with what's called samadhi, or concentration. We focus attention either on the breath, or sounds, or a phrase that we repeat, and that switches us out of the inner chatter, which takes us away from the possibility of having a spiritual, sublime experience. The fastest way to deactivate the... In the, what some neuroscientists call the interpreter, the left hemispheric chatterbox, which represents its life and takes us away from the felt connection with the world. The fastest way to deactivate that is by focusing your attention as much as you can on an ongoing sensation to the point where you no longer have anything to say about it. It's hard after a while to get lost in chatter about your breathing. You just focus on it, and eventually you just observe it, but there's very little languaging, there's very little self-doubt. You're not trying to acquire anything while you're breathing. You're not trying to do anything other than just breathe. Eventually, when we get to a place where the mind settles, then we open awareness and sati, where we reach the possibility of the real spiritual experience because we attain a awareness that's open and spacious and present, that's non-judgmental, that's totally receptive, that appreciates life without turning it into any category of good or bad, worthwhile, worthless. It just is. The Buddha says we'll know when we're there because certain things will happen. He says we'll experience dibachaku, which means we'll see 
things that we normally wouldn't see. That's if you meditate when your eyes are open, or if you're in a, you know, you're doing walking meditation. Or Diva Sota, which is you'll hear things you normally wouldn't hear. Suddenly the fan might become more fascinating than any other sound you've ever heard before. Or some other sensation will become fascinating. You'll suddenly feel the palms of your hands in a way that you've never before. Because they take the sensations take on a novelty which is different than the multitasking where we're going, oh, that's my palms and my hands, I don't need to feel that go away. And you get rid of that sensation. Dhammata, the Buddha said, will experience a state where we'll be drawn to the natural without any feeling of being different or vulnerable. Now finally, because I want to lead the meditation, I want to note that if we want to have another idea or way to approach the spiritual, there was a great 20th century psychologist named Abraham Maslow. Some of you might recognize the name. He did a uh, what's called the hierarchy of needs. It was a pyramid. And basically, he said that the goal in life is self-actualization, which means to achieve a place where we can deeply connect and experience and uh, have uh, a creative engagement with the world. But to get to that, he said, there's a lot of fascinating writings that sound eerily similar to what the Buddha proposed. He said, those people who are self-actualized, once they've met the barest requirements in their life of food, shelter, just like the Buddha said, we have rest requisites, we have to have food, shelter, uh, clothing, medicine, and friends to support us. Once we have those basic needs met, he said, the self-actualized appreciate life with awe and pleasure and wonder. They have no quality of jadedness to them. They don't approach life with a sense of boredom or ennui or having been there before. They every day open to a state of wonder, taking in, finding that which is unique and different. The self-actualized can love and empathize with other people to the obliteration of their ego boundaries to the point where they no longer think in terms of self and other. The self-actualized embrace the ambiguous and mysterious. In other words, just like the Buddha, Maslow is saying they don't need to turn everything into a story or a concept. When they see a David Lynch movie, they don't come out of the movie and the first thing they say is, what do you think that meant? They don't try to translate experience into ideas. They simply let experience resonate. They don't fit things into ideas. They allow life to remain mysterious and unknown. They have a mission, a task that they want to attend to, but Maslow says they don't want to arrive at the end of their task. They simply enjoy the journey. All of this we've heard before. So, get comfortable. I'm going to lead you in a meditation that will hopefully lead you in the direction of a spiritual experience. So the key for this meditation is to be as relaxed and comfortable as you can.
try not to keep your body in any uncomfortable, rigid position. Just find that position that feels really appropriate for your body. Don't try to look like a meditator. Don't try to look like what you think the Buddha looked like. Do not hold your fingers in a mudra position. You can do that any other time, but not in this. Uh, you keep your fingers in this this kind of stuff. Don't. Just relax your hands. Make it really, really relaxed and comfortable. Try to keep your head from drifting in front of your chest or shoulders, just so you won't fall asleep and you won't cause any neck strain. Also, if your head's in line with your body, it makes it easier to connect with the feelings in the body. So, if your eyes are not closed, then look at the ground right in front of you. The idea is to remove sight, which is a dominant sensation, and will pull you out of embodied awareness. So we're going to start our practice in unison, which makes it easier to let go of worrying about how we appear or what other people are doing, knowing that you're engaged in an activity that everyone else around you is doing. It's a great way to let go of self-other concern. So take a nice full in-breath through the nose and if you'd like lift your shoulders up like you're trying to touch your ears and just hold them up there and then when you're ready breathe out through your mouth and drop the shoulders like they weigh each a ton and let your arms fall lifelessly by your side take another Full in-breath through the nose, and this time contract the belly as tight as you can, holding it, and then as you breathe out, soften the belly. Nice, soft, relaxed belly, no holding, no tension. And then for the third in-breath, squinch the muscles in the face. Tighten the eyes, lock the jaws, squinch the face, really pinched face. And then as you breathe out, soften the micro-muscles around the eyes, unclench the jaw. If it feels available to you, allow the mouth to fall into an uh, unforced Mona Lisa type half smile, but if that's unrealistic, if it doesn't feel natural, then don't. Allow your mouth to fall into whatever feels like a natural state. And then take a survey of your body, starting from the very top. Just scan your body like your awareness was a scan that could move 
all the way through your body and find any area of tension and just if you stumble upon anything that feels uncomfortable, stop there and either adjust or breathe into that area. If you have a knot in the back of your neck, breathe into it, relax. If you feel the clothes are too tight, feel free to adjust. Scanning around the body, any sensations that feel uncomfortable, breathe into, whisper into the area, encouraging it to soften and relax. What we're cultivating is a awareness that is as compassionate and non-judgmental as we can. That's also a key to developing a spiritual engagement with life. So this point, we're going to employ a concentration practice just to settle the mind, to remove us from the switch off the thinking part, switch off the trying to get anywhere, accomplish anything, accumulate anything, get rid of the trying to do anything, remove the self-doubt, and the way we want to do this is by just finding a really simple ongoing sensation and just pay attention to it, something that just requires persistence but no expertise. You don't have to be good at it, you don't have to be anything at it. You just keep the breath in mind or sounds in mind. Or you just keep a very simple phrase in mind. So if you want to use the breath, find the area of your body where the inhalation and exhalation is most clear to awareness. Some people do the tip of the nose, some people the chest, some people the belly. Just find sensations that let you know when you're breathing in and breathing out. And then we start counting inhalations and exhalations. So you might think one as you breathe in and think two as you breathe out. Think three as you breathe in, think four as you breathe out. And then five on the next in-breath, start counting down four on the out, three on the in, two on the out. So we're counting from one to five and back down with two and four always on the out breath. If you'd like, you can try to make those out breaths a little bit longer and smoother than they normally are. The longer and smoother, the more relaxed and settled the mind. If you just want to 
pay attention to sounds, that's fine. Just listen to the sounds floating in from the street. Don't visualize what's creating the sound. Don't add any commentary about any sound. Just always know what sound is happening in this moment. Don't judge how you're doing. You're doing perfectly fine. Always feel really good about your practice. Even if it's difficult, even if you struggle, you're still cultivating so many beneficial neural states simply by sitting down and focusing attention away from all the stressors in life. You could simply repeat a very simple phrase in your mind. I love you, keep going. May all beings be peaceful, free of stress and suffering. May I know true peace. Any short sequence of words that denotes seeking non-material fulfillment. Finally, what will happen sooner or later is a thought that's really, really fascinating or scary or important will arrive in the train station of your mind and it will, in its own way, lure you into this train of thought, and then it will whisk you away, far away from the actual present time moment. And you'll wind up in a very distant virtual reality created entirely by the mind. When that happens, simply get off the train and you'll immediately be back here. What not to do is don't judge or criticize, don't evaluate your practice, don't become impatient. Do, on the other hand, feel good about yourself. Do Remind yourself that you're engaged in an activity that is harmless, that doesn't use up any of the world's resources, that doesn't put you in conflict with anyone, that produces valuable results in terms of improved memory and attention, reduced activation of the sympathetic nervous system, i.e. fear and stress. So every time you find 
you've drifted away and you've noticed it and you've gotten out of the thought, feel good about it. Feel good about your... Each time that's an awakening, you've woken up from a daydream. In meditation, there's nothing to criticize. There's nothing to judge.
So at this point you can let go of the breath or sounds or the inner phrase you've been repeating. Just open your awareness to the entirety of the present moment, which consists of the feeling of your body, including the breathing that's sustaining your body, the feeling of sitting, and then there's feelings themselves of comfort and discomfort that arise and pass, that sense of being at ease in any moment or not being at ease. Very often we know this by feelings of tightness in the front of the body. There'll be states of mind, attention. You might feel tired or you might feel awake. You might feel distracted or very present. You might feel that your mind is very spacious and wide and open, or you might feel it's very contracted. There'll be thoughts in the background. There'll be many other sensations present. But your task is to stay fully present in each moment and find, investigate, explore as if you've never been in a human body before sitting listening, being present. Imagine you came from a distant galaxy and somehow you transported yourself into a human body. You've never breathed before, you've never heard sounds before, you've never sat amongst other people, you've never felt the sensations of comfort and discomfort, you never had the thoughts floating, seeking your attention, you never had states of tiredness or energy. All of this is unchartered. You've never been here before. You have no expectations. Your job is to find the most interesting, unique, engaging, and just be with that sensation. Don't turn it into an idea. Don't annotate it or add a story about what you're experiencing. Just be in this moment as fully immersed as you can, not wanting 
to get anywhere, not wanting anything to happen that's not already happening.
in a very, very often quoted teaching, the Buddha said, the answer is not in the past, which has already happened and is gone. The answer is not in the future, which hasn't happened. Furthermore, he noted that life has absolutely no guarantees, that each moment could be the last. So the only possible place that the answer to fulfillment, peace of mind, true awakening, insight, is right in this very moment, right here and now. And he says, if you live finding what is truly transcendent in this moment, then you have a truly auspicious day. So what in this moment do you think you know, but you really don't? What can you pay attention to that you can unpack through sheer observation and find something deeply mysterious, unique, awe-inspiring. Is it the body breathing, the ability to hear, consciousness itself? Is it your ability to feel all through your body? Is it just the cumulative mystery of being alive? What is it we've been taking for granted that we can suddenly turn towards right now? So when you're ready, we're going to very slowly bring the meditation to a close. Whenever you feel ready to open your eyes, first look at the ground in front of you. Don't look around the room. When you do open your eyes and see the ground in front of you, see if you can integrate sight and color without it dominating your awareness so that you still feel your body and the breath and 
feelings and you're still aware of the quality of attention that the mind has. And then very slowly as you open your eyes and look around the room, still keep in mind the feeling of the body, the breath, the mood you're in, so that you have a fully mindful state of attention. 